welcome to episode 35 of the What's Up podcast recorded by Old Rookie Astro. It's the 14th of March 2019. Yes, that's right. It's American Pie Day. Um, today's podcast, we're going to cover a few topics as usual that have caught our eye. None of them relating to pie, sadly. Today's topics are going to be about landers, dragons, and flares. Oh my. <laughs> as it must be said every time. Landers, dragons, and flares. Oh my. Um, I can't even remember where that's from, the lions and daggers and bears thing. But um, Wizard of Oz. Oh, is it from... Okay. Yeah. 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 I stand corrected. Apologies. Lions and tigers and bears. Am I? <laughs> um, wh- which one are we covering first? Dragons. Uh, yep. Players. We can start with landers. Uh, uh, that's that's all the options. Yes. Uh, the landers one's sad though. Do okay. I want to start sad well, or end sad? I think we'll we'll start off with the sad one and we'll we'll build up from there. Okay. I'm sad. Um, and we we've mentioned this before in the past, but it's now official and it sort of happened before we'd finished recording last month's podcast, but now I have to be really sad. Um, the Opportunity Rover has been officially discontinued. It is dead. It is no more. It is a dead parrot. Uh, and I'm very sad. <laughs> Just falling <laughs> off his perch. It's falling off his perch. Uh, and, and it made me more sad than I would care to admit because Oppie's been going for so long. It's been a scientist on Mars longer than I have been. So that's You've never a, been a scientist on Mars. Well, sorry, shut up. just scientist in general. But I mean, it's been on Mars for more than 15 years. Yeah, it's crazy, and isn't it? So um, for those of you that um, weren't following the, the, the dust storm event, this was uh, 2018, uh, around about the beginning of June. Um, this is not unusual for Mars. It's, it's a dusty place. And every so often the dust storms get a bit global and they get a bit nasty. So um, Oppie is a solar powered rover and has been trucking for a long time. We will talk more about that in a second um but the dust got so bad that from june the first when they first saw hints that a dust storm was brewing the rover was essentially dead by the 12th of june so they had their last signal from it on the 10th and the last signal was essentially uh my battery's getting low and it's dark and that made people doubly sad when they realized that's what was being said and the rover was taking a a 360 panorama at the time so you can now go and view that half finished panorama where some of the bits are still in black and white because it hadn't got to the color filters um the sunlight was so blotted out by this dust it's officially the record breakingest I, I i i speak good england today uh, it's it was the darkest the sky has ever been as recorded from the surface of mars so the tau value was something like 10.8 which basically means it was as dark as night during the daytime the solar power generated by the panels fell off to like less than 5% of what you would normally expect during the daytime. Um, Oppie needs to have heaters to help keep its um, internal critical electronics uh, from completely freezing um, because that's the, the biggest risk to that rover in addition to dust on the solar panels. So all of these things combined and NASA sent, I think, according to the latest thing that I read, they sent more than a thousand attempts to re-establish communications. So after the dust storm cleared, um, they were trying to work out exactly what kind of safe mode Oppie would have been in because they barely had time to figure out how bad it was getting to tell it to ex- you know take extra precautions or whatever. Um, so they tried to reboot it and tried to contact it and eventually gave up after months of trying. Um, and the, one of the reasons it got extra sad was somebody had tweeted um, that the last thing they played in the control room 
was the Billie Holiday song, I'll Be Seeing You. And then if you listen to the lyrics for that, it's so melancholic. And people on Twitter, it was just like, there's a whole bunch of crying memes just going, oh my God, Oppie. <laughs> um, but, they, they, you know, they have been talking about Oppie as if it's if, as if it's a kid, you know? It's like, and I think they refer to it as she in the control room. And those songs were sort of designed to keep the controllers happy and they would play different <laughs> ones every single day. There's even a playlist on Spotify that has some of those songs on it that I think somebody from the Opportunity Team had put together. And it went a bit, um, it sort of turned into an urban myth, I think, because I spent longer than I should have this afternoon trying to <laughs> confirm this. But the original story I read implied that they transmitted the song to the rover. And that was the last, so rather than the wake-up commands that they were sending, they would transmit this song. And the, the sort of poeticness of sending a little song to say goodnight, I was like, oh my God. And then I looked into it and it actually sounds like, I think they were just playing the song in the control room. But very quickly that got spun into that was the last thing they, they sent to the rover kind of thing. So it's probably not true. I would quite like it to be true for the, the romanticism of that. But I mean, just this rover was kind of epic. So, um, how epic? Okay. Um, for perspective, it was designed to last for 90 sols. And a sol is essentially the same length as uh, an Earth day, just 40 minutes longer. So a sol um, is a Mars day. Yeah, essentially. Um, and it's, it's quite handily similar, but not quite. So I haven't figured out if the controllers were on Mars time or Earth time. And, you know, do they have to like, follow that different clock? Yeah, I think um, they do. Don't they're, they're on Mars they, time. They, they, they yeah. sh- so their shift pattern changes according to Mars time. to the Earth's day. That's actually quite cool because it's it like is. working on a submarine or something. You've got to enforce so. your own uh, daytime. And I think when you say about. The fact that people felt like they've lost a family member or something oh, like that. Crying it's like, and it's like because these people they've been working on it for a significant fraction of their professional lives. But also it has dictated their lives. It's kind of you know, yeah. they've been living on Martian time for for however long. It's, I mean I'm sure yeah. they presumably have some shift rotation pattern. Yes. Um, yes. But um, it's still it, well, it does, I mean, it's dominated some of those people life, will have moved on. I mean it's such a long yeah. mission that some Absolutely. people wouldn't be working on it anymore. I mean it landed in two thousand and four and it officially sort of passed away if you like in 2018 when when the storm got too bad um but Shh, because it was designed for 90 days and when you factor in how many days it was actually there for it was something like and eventually it's, it's seen through 5111 martian days in the end and just for perspective i'm supposed to retire in um sort of 2048 I think is the current pensionable age. <coughs> You'll be lucky. I just yeah. said how old I am. And I see, I was now working backwards. How old are you? Right? If I so I've been designed to last for fifty years. You know, eighteen till sixty-eight. That's that's what you get out of my working life. Not that I've put in that much work. Um, but if I had to retire on opportunities terms, I wouldn't be able to retire until the year four thousand seven hundred ninety-eight. Um, so it's fifty-five times longer than I'd been designed to last. So it just to sort of put in perspective how well this rover had done. And it still, I think, currently holds the record for the furthest distance travelled off-world. And that includes rovers driven by humans on the moon. Oh, does and, it? Uh, a Russian rover as well went further. Yeah. Lunacod 2, I think. And I didn't know that either until I saw the opigraphs. Yeah. Mm. And Curiosity has the potential to beat this, but I think last I checked it hadn't. So, oh, that's uh, a long way off, I think. Yeah, so there's, there's still a lot to do. I mean, to be honest, it averaged a very slow speed. But there yeah. were some days, I think it holds the record for the furthest distance travelled in a single day. As like 220 meters or something, which is kind of a big jump if you're scared about getting stuck in sand dunes, which Oppie almost did. Mm. And a sand dune was essentially what killed off um, Spirit. So mm. that was the sister um, to Oppie. And it got stuck in sand and sort of beached itself. And then they ran out of power trying to free it and weren't able to get Spirit back. But Oppie's sort of 
seen off about eight different threats and, and managed to sort of keep plugging away. And I think it sent back something like a quarter of a million raw images. And the, the, like, the geology of where it's been spending most of its time is stunning. I mean, just views of these sort of sheer crater walls and all the different layers. And, and it's sort of, that's a very sort of rich history of the, the, the sort of watery past of this region on Mars. Uh, and as with most of these missions, there will be people analysing that data for a very long time to come. But um, but yeah, it's just everyone feels like they've lost a family member or something. It's just like, oh, wow, okay, Oppie's gone. And then um, I, we probably can't get away with putting it on the podcast, but I'll, I'll put a link to the Billy Holiday song <laughs> when we post this. And it just just go and listen to it and, and feel sad for Oppie. That, that's all I ask. Um, I think that's all you can do really into it. <laughs> I think one thing that I wanted to, to mention, because I ended up watching The Martian uh, a couple me, of nights ago, me, me. which is you know quite a good film, mm. Matt Damon. It was quite good. But at the beginning of that film, um, I'd leave a spoiler to say that the reason Matt Damon stays on Mars is because of a dust storm. Oh yeah. And what's showing the dust storm is like the rocket being pushed over and everything getting thrown around and this big thing. And given what's happened, opportunity, I can see people might think, oh yeah, that's 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 happened, opportunity. It was like blown over sideways and all this kind of stuff. Oh, I like, see. Yeah. Uh, mm, that's not quite true. Mm. Lots of good science in that film. That bit was wrong though. Because the atmospheric density is so low on Mars, that strong winds on Mars is a stiff breeze. Yeah, yeah. So it's it should really have pushed low. over the thing that had to then take off to yeah. leave Matt Damon behind. So right. I, think, I never thought about that because, as you say, they they've gone to such lengths to do lots of good science. All the yeah. calculations of how many potatoes he's got and all that stuff is, is actually <laughs> sound, isn't it? It's yeah, really imaginatively and well done, but with maths behind it. But yeah, you're right. The initial storm is. Which, tenuous. admittedly, it would be a much more dull film if they just went, oh, we've got to take a bit dusty back. outside. <laughs> I'd oh, like well. to know how, how many bottles of wine they got through at the sort of the, the writer's meeting or whatever, where they were like, we really need to find a way of getting Matt Damon sort of dead so that everybody leaves without him. And yeah, that was maybe well, the only... That was in the original book. Yeah, it's, it's from um, the book. So it happens oh, in the book blog. as well. The storm yeah, yeah. blows the thing. Away. And the book, the book is even more kind of... It reads like a maths kind of... Um, exam mm. at times you know you have four <laughs> liters of this da, 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 da. you know how long can you i mean obviously not written like that but it, you can just imagine that's how it's you know but i think it was i thought it was one guy i think basically just who was just yeah. enjoyed doing the sums um, and then put it within a kind of framework which yeah. which because it was i think wasn't it released as a sorry we we're off topic <laughs> it was released as i think as a, it was a book which did really well on ebooks and then yeah. became a film because it had done so well in the ebook world. Well, I think um, you need to go a further step further back. If memory serves, and I could be entirely wrong, I may have a retraction of this next month, but <laughs> he originally started releasing it as blog posts. Ah. And it was as if he was stuck on Mars ah. and he was releasing these, Ooh. like, what I'm doing. And that's, that's why the mass is so heavy. Because he was working it in, like, it's how he was living through it. And then it got converted into a book. And it's like the, Ars- the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast, you know. Yeah. Do it like for real and cause panic. <laughs> if, it's, if it's not, that's not true. I, I don't want to be corrected. I, I, I'm quite happy to I live like with it. that idea. Well, don't forget, Matt Damon gets saved by another rover. He does. In, in exactly. movie as well, okay, so. now, now we're getting into power territory. <laughs> the key point I wanted to make was that it wasn't as if opportunity was blown over by wind or anything like that. It was just levels of just dust covering up the solar panels very slowly yeah which meant that it couldn't get enough power and thus went into failure so I, I think they were hoping that they had detected winds nearby from one of the orbital satellites that we have around mars and mars is still a busy place so don't worry there's well, still plenty of images and obviously curiosity still trucking insight is now drilling into the surface last i heard I think and measuring got a bit said stuck. wind as well yes yes yeah. 
Um, and so they were hoping the wind was going to dust off the solar panels. But if the internals had gotten too cold in that time, then that might spell the end um, for the hardware. So I think that was maybe the, mm. the nail in the coffin there. Um, and the controllers had spent ages trying to get a signal back out of OP, but nothing. So eventually they just said, yeah, it's become a bit futile, so we'll have to stop. Um, but it's kind of a nice end to what was a fantastic mission, considering how long they expected yeah. it to last. So, yeah. Bye, OP. So, at the risk of, you know, I agree with you, amazing mission, great work, da da da. But I've also heard the argument that always bad engineering. What you mean? They you've been asked to design something which should last ninety days, and it lasts for under promised and over delivered. Well, That's good, but it end. means that you know you probably could have, you know, not necessarily bought such a expensive motor because it didn't need to last that long, or you didn't. You know, it it was it, it was well over spec. I'm getting a very <laughs> sort of scathing look from the engineer over here. As, you you with, can't win with an instrument no. scientist, or can you? No, no, well, you I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to put an engineering hat on this, or a systems engineering hat on it. Are you saying I, you would have been sitting there looking at your bottom line and going, are you telling me I could have saved X exactly. thousand pounds because you've put in something too expensive? Yeah. <laughs> but you want a motor that's guaranteed to work after launch, hitting Mars surface, guaranteed to work for 90 days. So it's got to be a damn good motor. It's going to be well-built and well-reliant. If you want to guarantee it works for 90 days, and it works for longer than that, great. How long does it work? 55 times longer. If it helps you, yeah. it was limping along, and it was developing memory problems, as we yeah. all do later <laughs> in life. Um, so it actually had to shut down its flash memory, so it was only using its RAM because the flash was breaking and it kept resetting. Its two front wheels ceased to steer, so it was getting steered by its back wheels only. Um, so it was kind of hanging on there. Okay, that's, re that's reassuring me. I think, but also, actually, it's interesting to note as well that the often missions are kind of specced for less time because sometimes they will that's how much budget they have for the ground support mm -hmm. and then they the mission starts and it's going really well I mean they've done this with Juno Juno actually the primary mission was only like I don't know a handful of orbits around Jupiter and then they but, but always with the expectation that if it was going well it would get extended yeah. and I don't know whether there was a slight element of that with Juno well I, I think as with so many of these things um, you're primarily limited by people Rather mm. than hardware, yeah. So it's it's, it's it's the it's the staff time that it requires. You've got loads of people doing night in. shifts. Yeah, it? yeah, exactly. So maybe maybe that was always the plan, and then you'll eke out I think, as long I think as it you is. can with it. Because I, I suppose I'm slightly struck by, and we've discussed this briefly before, but when Kepler died relatively recently, or, or really died, but Kepler at the end of its free. This year, is the telescope, not the person who's already not around. <laughs> just checking <laughs> when, the, when the astronomer came to the end of his primary mission. Um, <laughs> no, when the telescope after three years. One of its gyros went, whoop, had enough. And it meant they had to slightly change the science it was doing. It was designed to last for three years. It died. Not even died, but it performance degraded after three years. And lots of people were like, oh, that's not very good. Because and they were expecting to yeah. get an opportunity level of... And it's almost... It I'm not saying you shouldn't... I mean, it's intriguing. Because I think we have a similar thing with JWST, that when JWST, after five years, which is what its minimum requirement is, dies, everyone's going to go, whoa, hang on. Hubble's lasted for 30 years. We, we expect this to do the same. And it's just interesting, I think, how, how, you, how the yeah. missions of these things are defined think, initially and then how they I reform. keep forgetting it's a five, but in most it's of the things that I read, they usually say nominally it'll be 10, assuming all goes well, um, but you're guaranteed five or something. That yeah. was Which the, means if it dies on five years in a day... It will be depressing, but... But it did its job. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> I think, anyway, 
Sorry, <laughs> DLST. We'll, we'll, we'll come back around to this. And I'm going to remember this podcast when I over-engineer something next time and it works better than you asked me to. I'm going to point out you've complained about that in the past. So, you know. Is it like overpaying your taxes? You get a rebate on some of that? It's just like, mm. I won't. Well, show me the money. <laughs> I, I, this is the sort of thing I get regularly told off about when I'm saying, oh, we should, you know, oh, can we not try and get this? I'm like, well, this is just about meat and spec. That should be fine. And if you push too hard on that, then you lose something else. Mm. Anyway, sorry, shall we come back to the conversation? Yeah. Actually, some homework for us all is go and find missions that failed before their end yeah. of mission spec, assuming it wasn't something catastrophic to do with landing, because like, I don't <laughs> think that's kind of cheating. Be- Beagle like. 2. <laughs> <laughs> Beagle 2 made it so close and the hinge stopped. Sorry, it's the curse of Mars is back again, I think. But it's kind of interesting that it took a record-breaking global dust storm to kill this tiny yeah. little golf cart-sized rover so you know it was pretty tenacious i should take retract my comments good work <laughs> okay sticking with the technology theme um and sticking with successful missions dragon the what? dragon capsule Maybe from dragon. spacex going to the iss so this was what last week yeah um, this all happened and this was the first successful test of the manned dragon capsule so the Dragon Capsule has been doing um, cargo missions to ISS for a couple of years now, very successfully with SpaceX. This was their first modified manned capsule. So to be clear, it wasn't carrying any people. Um, it was a test flight, but it went all the way to the ISS and docked and did the whole sort of successful mission profile. There was something, there was a few things on board. though. <laughs> so the first thing to be clear was they had a mannequin on board. Uh, in a spacesuit, which was fully censored up to simulate a person. Ripley. This person was called Ripley. Um, After yeah. the Ripley? From yes. Fair play. So good. Them. So good. <laughs> in SpaceX, I name a lot of their stuff after um, science fiction uh, uh, references. I'm okay with that. And all the, all the uh, cargo boats are named after... Um, oh, Ian, Ian M. Banks. Thank you. Uh, yep, Completely yep, heard yep. like they're Ian M. Banks. <laughs> ships um i hadn't realized that the falcon rockets are named after the millennium falcon yeah, Star really? Wars. Yeah. i never knew that excellent uh, and this, very was, good. this was ripley yeah. from the the alien franchise um and of course ripley made it successfully to the iss there was no chest bursters everything was fine um and you know it's fully censored up so they've got lots of data now to sort of hopefully send to know now that it's safe for humans um, we'll come back to sort of future missions with that with that capsule. But one thing I did also notice was they had an additional thing on board. Uh, hopefully, everyone saw that. That was the first thing I saw in a tweet from Elon, I think. Yeah, and it was just floating past the lens. <laughs> so what, what we're referring to is the uh, zero G indicator that they added to the mission. This was a last minute addition. So just as we're closing up the capsule, someone threw in uh, a low tech zero G indicator, which is a cuddly toy. This was a, a world-shaped cuddly toy um, from a company in the US. And essentially, the reason for having this in there, the legitimate reason for having this in there was when they hit zero G, everything, of course, is tied down in the, in the spacecraft. So you don't know for sure. Um, as well as the cameras, you wouldn't see anything change. And it's the same way we mentioned a while back when the Soyuz failed. There was like a, a thing on a bungee cord in the Soyuz. Yeah, a wee cuddly toy that was doing weird physics. <laughs> because the gravity's going haywire. And that's exactly what this is for as well. So as soon as they got into zero G, this color toy would float up and float past the that's camera, nice. and that's that's it's quite G. cute. It's got like a sort of couple of eyes and a wee smile and two arms and two legs sticking out from this globe. So if you're not a flat earther, you're really not going to like these videos. <laughs> uh, so this this was up, and it was meant to come back with the capsule because the capsule docked was there for a couple of days. They had a bunch of tests. The astronauts on board the ISS did a bunch of checks and things. 
then that capsule was released, sent back to Earth, landed in the ocean via parachutes, um, will not be reused, but could be. If, if they wanted to. If they wanted to. Yep. As it stands, the contract with SpaceX and NASA means that they are not allowed to reuse manned capsules. Oh, really? They have to use fresh ones for every launch. Is that just NASA's rules, is it? Okay. At the moment. Fair enough. They need to have a proven track record for the But does that mean that. people like me could get in on the cheap when they reuse? <laughs> <laughs> Dear Secondhand capsule for my first space flight. But as I've already alluded to, this cuddly toy did not return on that mission. The astronauts were so attached to this thing that on, as soon as they got open the capsule up and they retrieved it, there was a bunch of photographs flying around. So what you'll have seen of it sitting in the cupola, looking out the windows, looking up at Mother Earth, as they're referring to it. Um, it had, there was a, they did a safety drill with like gas masks at one point, and they had a gas mask for the cuddly toy to wear. <laughs> um, they've got it helping out with things. So they've got these loads of photographs of it doing stuff around the have, ISF. Have they named it? Does it have a name? It does, doesn't it? Oh, I think it's just Earthy. Earthy. It's like, I'm, I'm having images of Wilson. You remember Wilson from the Castaway <gasps> movie? Don't bring up Wilson. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm just hoping just that it comes back at some point. You know. Well, so it is. That's so what, what they've agreed next. I'm not sure why they're not leaving it there permanently, but seemingly they're not allowed to. So now what's happening is the there's, so there's other launch. I mean, are of, they in trouble for not clearing house when Dragon <laughs> left? <laughs> Stowaway. I expect some to be real like that. So the plan is now the next Falcon. Uh, launch with a dragon on top mm-hmm. is to is going to I think possibly a new capsule. They're going to test the escape system, so it's Ooh. going to be unmanned again. Oh, yeah, right? it's going to go up to not orbit and then eject and test the um, the safety mechanisms. Essentially, that's going to be happening in April now because this mission went so well. They've brought the timeline forward, All right? So that's going to happen due to oh, happen I'm in April again. Awesome. And then in July. The current timeline indicates two NASA astronauts will be getting in a manned Dragon capsule and taken up to the ISS. And that will come back with people on board as well, as well as Earthy. That's nice. when they're bringing him back. So, so they are so promising to bring him back. back. Okay, that's very cool. Uh, the company that supplied the cuddly toy, apparently this was not planned. This was some cuddly toy off their desk in, in the office. Because <laughs> um, the company had no idea about this in advance. They have now completely sold out. Because within 48 hours, they had thousands of orders for these things. Yay. And they had no idea what was going on. So they have now, they've now offered everyone who's, who's paid for one but not able to get one to either cancel the order and get a refund or to wait. They're doing another batch of them now in um, higher resolution you do realize and better as, quality. But as collector items go, you'll have the batch one version yeah, of yeah, Earthy yeah. and that'll be the one that's, that's, that's worth way more money in the future. So fair play to all you kinos. <laughs> so, I mean, as, as exciting as, you know, new manned capsules and all that kind of stuff is, cuddly toy in space I yeah that's all that really yeah. well, it's worth all those billions of pounds of investment <laughs> i'm also wondering if they're regretting their color scheme because one of the first tweets i saw to know that it actually splashed down was i think it was chris hadfield's account and he was just like looked like a perfect toasted marshmallow um because it's, it's quite badly charred because obviously yeah. it's getting you know pretty pretty cooked on the way through the atmosphere so yeah it's the choice of white it's like driving a white car it's really hard to keep clean. <laughs> I imagine a lot of that stuff will be replaced though, because that'll be sacrificial and things. And what else I hadn't realized is this is essentially a modified um, version of the, the cargo one. It can contain up to seven seats. It looked quite seven yeah. seats. Oh, really? Sci-fi, as much yeah. as that? That's quite It was good. quite shiny. Yeah. It was very, yeah. I, I think one of the other interesting things it did was it, was, it docked itself, didn't it? Yes. Which is, I think, is that a first? Because well, it's a first for the Dragon. Because they used to like. They grab them with... Uh, so that's still the case yeah. for the cargo dragons. They have yeah. to get picked up by the Canada arm and plugged in. 
Um, and also the Dragons notably have deployable solar panels that come out the back of it. Right. Sorry, this is the cargo ones, yeah. like unfolding things. In the manned capsule, that's not the case. Its solar panels are in the outside rim. That's like the wallpaper. Built in, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I suppose you don't want things sticking out on it. And it docks itself. Car. Not sure what they're, why, but that's... That is the Sawyers and stuff, they, I mean, they, they are brought in by people. They actually the, navigated in rather than they, self-docking. They can do self-docking, the Soyuz, oh, right, but they okay. regularly fail. So they always have an yes, override to do it. I remember this, watching Tim Peake. And yeah, yeah, they had the to training. go to manual, yeah. didn't they? Yes. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Okay. Not going to lie, it's one of the things I would want to practice. Just have somebody shout, "We're going to manual." <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. This isn't the only cool space story. I realise we we have one other thing to talk about, but I, it was, we should mention the Virgin Galactic one as well, mm-hmm. um, because um, apparently they had a Scottish pilot on board, Scottish born. So it's the first Scottish astronaut, according to that story. But the Virgin Galactic <laughs> spaceship has finally actually gone into space which is quite sexy and amazing. Um, and we were talking about this because um, depending on what definition of um, space mm. you actually like, um, maybe they haven't quite made it into spaceship. Uh, and this is an interesting point. Uh, and there might even be a conference this year to try and figure out the answer. Define where space is. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the, cool. the FAI, and please somebody else pronounce it, the Federation Aeronautical uh, International. It's a, it's a sort of French body, but it's a... It's a we could wor- tell it was French. The accent get you. I, I did not need a shop. Shut up, Al. That's our listeners <laughs> gone in France. But they oh, wait, have the <laughs> official um, read on aeronautical uh, boundaries. So according to their definition, and what NASA used to subscribe to, was that the official boundary for space was a nice round number, 100 kilometers, boom, done. Uh, and that would be fine, except for the fact that the American military don't use 100 kilometers, they use 80. So you get your astronauts' wings as soon as you've passed 80 kilometers <laughs> altitude. And NASA in 2005 decided to shift to that because they were going to have a flight that had an, a civilian pilot who was NASA and a military pilot on, and it was going to get confusing. So I think they wanted to unify with that system. So they're now angling for 80 kilometers as the boundary. And to be honest, the, the boundary really doesn't matter, but mm. it, we don't agree on what that should be yet. So it sounds like we're going to have to do some um, wrangling and see who agrees on what. But it, in theory... 100 kilometers was meant to represent the Kármán line, which is the, I'm going to get the definition wrong, but it's something to do with if you're flying an actual plane, which needs aerodynamic lift, um, if you're at the Kármán line, you are flying at orbital velocity just to achieve enough lift with your wings. So at that point, you are no longer an aeronautic vehicle, you are a spacecraft. Um, and that's a fairly clean definition, except that's not entirely true because the original Kármán calculations were something above 80 kilometers. And I think Carmen himself actually said 100 should just be the nice, easy to remember boundary between Earth and space. Uh, but to be fair, you wouldn't park a spacecraft at 110 kilometers anyway, because you would fall out of orbit quite fast because the atmosphere is dense enough to get in your way. Um, and the space station, for example, sits at 400. So technically, it doesn't matter. And I think, yay, more people going into space, that's fine. Um, but it's interesting that nobody agrees. Um, do you have a preference? 80, 100? Well, presumably... It's- but the, the atmosphere kind of expands and contracts depending on yeah. like, it's particularly associated with time of year so, yeah. time, um, yeah. and also solar activity I yep. think yep. Yep. so like, you can't say this is where the atmosphere is at half percent of or, or yeah. whatever it would be less than it but mm. so it's quite it's an arbitrary number it is an arbitrary hundreds are much nicer than 80 I kind of agree I think but you're going to have to take Edward's astronaut wings off them 
And if I had astronaut wings, you would prize them from my cool dead hands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's a valid point. I so. had not considered the uh, punch in the face. Something <laughs> <laughs> with wings. You didn't go to space. <laughs> I think you're fine. Yeah. I looked down, saw the curvature of the Earth, and the sky was black. Yeah, probably space. That's true. Oh, that would be a fun definition. At what point does the sky become exactly black? Uh, mm. Or, you know, so, you know. Could you define it exactly? Oh, okay. I don't know. We'll, we'll go to the conference and we'll find out. And that's, yeah, that'd be it nice. would be fun to be a fly on the wall there. Yeah, and is, it, is it just people sort of arguing for historical precedence or somebody going, but my wings? Uh, <laughs> but always yeah, worth I stressing, I think, when discussing the uh, Virgin Galactic stuff, that this is suborbital. Mm. So whilst they're going pretty high, they're just going up and down again, whereas the whole beauty of the... Well, they're going to 80 or 100 kilometres. I think um, they eventually where, will yeah. hit 100 but, anyway. But, but the, not 400, which is why yeah. the dragon thing yes. is so much more... But the, the, the rock is so much more beasty. is that you save a lot of money because you don't need all the oh, fuel. Absolutely. The fuel yeah, will yeah. keep you up if you need to go really fast. So a wee suborbital, quick hop up and then down, get the nice view. You try not to throw totally. up and yeah. then you're back. <laughs> and you lose £200,000 in the process. But that's fine. Is that all? That's fine. If I had spared £200,000, I'd be up here there. I me. <laughs> you don't. Uh, okay, so we had one more story to go through, which was about bears. I think it was about bears. Or oh, flares. Flares. That's Very bears. Oh, my. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so this was a bit of astronomical archaeology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, by that. Yeah. So where they have managed to find evidence of a past large solar flare pummeling the Earth um, about 660 BC, so quite a long time ago. Um, and Not which that I just, long ago? In the no, it, no, in astronomical scales, pretty, pretty recent. Yeah. Um, but it's quite an intriguing observation in some ways, and this has been done by looking at uh, the impact of a solar flare. So you get these solar flares all the time, um, coming off the sun's surface, send lots of charged particles pummeling towards the Earth, uh, well, in every direction, many of which hit the Earth, partially due to our magnetic fields. Um, but they managed to find um, evidence, this has been seen before, of carbon-14, which is a different isotope of carbon, um, and something, it's actually the thing which is always used for carbon dating of anything, basically. So normally, most carbon atoms are carbon-12, um, and then you get some carbon-14. In tree rings from that period, from 660 BC, they saw some evidence of an increased density of uh, carbon-14, um, which, in order for that to happen, would probably require some sort of external uh, influence to increase the quantity in the atmosphere. Um, and then they've gone and looked at ice cores from Greenland uh, of a similar time, and that they've got an overabundance of other isotopes as well, things like beryllium and things. Um, and they're pretty confident the only way you could generate that is by a large number of protons pummeling our atmosphere, um, which is just, I think that's really cool that you can kind of go back and you can look at previous solar activity just by looking at a dead tree. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty great. It's kind of awesome. I, I mean, I guess it's how climate change scientists have been doing this for a it long, is, it long is. time, know, looking for the new gas science. ratios yeah. and, and sort of, so that's, but that's cool because I knew you could date meteorite um, impacts. By looking for, is it iridium that yep. tells you it was a space rock that smashed into something? So if you see a, a very thin layer of iridium, you can go space rock. And then you have to go and look for the crater that made that little coating, which is kind of cool. But I didn't realize you could do it for solar flares. No, I was dying to see this. And it was, I think it's also the fact that they've got the two measurements as well from two independent sources, both 
pointing at the same event. But the other intriguing thing, of course, is the fact that hey, these are happening all the time. The important thing here was this was a big event. It was a heck of a flare. How big are we talking? Because the, the, the one I've heard of is the Carrington event. When yes. was that? That was 1900 was, and something? Uh, I think even possibly a little earlier because it was and, in the early days of the Telegraph stuff. So it, there were it, wires yeah, It was enough to electrically charge yeah. like tri- rail, yes. ra- railway lines and stuff, which is, you know, sounds a little bit daunting. And I think they think this would have been more powerful than that. Ooh. Um, but the intriguing thing, and there's something which I really didn't know anything about um, until looking, I was trying to read the paper from this and not understanding <laughs> or realising how little I understood. I, um, I'm glad you took the time to read it. <laughs> well, I, I started reading it and realised how little I understood in that the, um, this was a solar proton event. So generally the aurora we see um, are when uh, the solar wind hits us and generally we're looking at um, electrons. That, so, that nice tame looking green colour is because of electrons. Yes. Okay. Um, and Protons, which are more massive, they carry the same charge, but are more massive, um, come, okay, are emitted from the sun, but not as easily, presumably because they're... Would well, that still make a Rory? Because I think, because I know it's oxygen that gives you the green and it's the, the charged stuff that's hitting the oxygen that excites Good question. I don't know. Glow, I don't so think so. Cause I, I just want to know how, how no, gnarly the sky would look. Because I think the, the one of these. For, effectively for the aurora, the electrons hit... Um, and they cause excitation of the atom, which are then, um, as they drop back down. I, th- I think I, I was quite relieved when we had a seminar once about Aurora, and some and one of the Aurora scientists had said, "Yeah, we, we still don't really know no. exactly how they're made." So I'm quite relieved. <laughs> so we're, we're going to go with that. Nobody knows, but I'm sure someone does. Yeah, but, but, I'm but, not sure protons would cause the same type of aurora, um, but and I don't or actually would excite I, different gases or yes, whatever. Maybe yep. so. Um, but one thing which they did mention was the fact that. Um, Actually, that was somewhere else I was reading this. They were saying that the the protons are believed to be the sort of things which actually cause. But apparently, astronauts report seeing flashes um, of light occasionally uh, when when they're in, uh, in space, um, and they think this could be protons from the sun. So um, I don't think just, that happens which, to low Earth orbit astronauts. I think it was just the no. Apollo astronauts that reported. Oh right, okay. The flashes. I didn't, right, um, but but again, I think you need to be away from. Earth's I think probably so because it'd be funneled along the magnetic yeah, field. Yeah, you're more likely so, to yeah. get smacked by one. Yeah. Of um, so it's, it's something you would want to worry about if you're on the way to Mars because yes. you're, you're unprotected for quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think I'd say I'm, I don't want to go and read more about this because I didn't know anything about these oh, events. Cool. But I just think it's, uh, I also just love that idea of a story where you can kind of backdate astronomy. I, one of my favorite things in the night sky um, is the uh, Crab Nebula, um, which was the remnants of a supernova which went off in 1051, I think, something like that, middle, middle of the 11th century. Um, and which was you know, was discovered, the Crab Nebula, the expanding shell of stuff was discovered by uh, Messier when he was doing his catalogues um, and said, oh, there's a blob over there. And then later science was able to say, well, hang on, that blob's expanding. Wind back the clock. It must have been a point that thing in 1050. And they went back and found the Chinese astronomers had recorded this flash of light in that patch of the sky. And he's like, that's awesome. It's astronomy on human time scale. This has got that same feeling. It's like yeah. 2,000 years. It's sort of, you no, know, it's, it's it on our nice time scale. We can... Although if, yeah. if anyone fancies an extra apocalypse scenario, a data apocalypse may unfold. If we get hit by something oh, nasty, yes. we have a lot of satellites. Oh, yeah. Most of our communications depend on these kind of things. GPS, yeah. for example, would fail overnight if something really bad hit the Earth. They also indicated that they think that an event of this magnitude would probably damage the ozone layer somewhat as well. So oh, there's an additional good. joy. Um, um, so increased rates of cancer. Uh, have they run the numbers? Do they know how often they would expect something like this to happen? Is well, it... there was some mention that there was an event in 
uh, around seventh century, which is probably slightly smaller. Um, but there the, I also saw something which was saying that ten thousand years ago we think there was something which was even bigger still. Wow. Um, so I think this is probably an area where we are uncovering new data sets. You know, unless it's sort of you know, we're doing historical astronomy now, yeah. um, where we will probably find out more about the frequency of these things. But presumably I- not that common. But um, but maybe something which would happen in the next few hundred years, or potentially, yeah. if there's been two in the last two thousand. It's not common on human life skills, but certainly no. common on astronomical type skills. You can all, also all the time on astronomical yeah. skills. Well, yeah. if you if you design your electrical networks and your satellites to be resilient to those things as well, you've got a better chance of it weathering the storm, as it yeah. were. It'll yes. do like an oppy thing and just hunker down and <laughs> wait for the storm to blow over and then switch back on yeah. again. So that would be the plan. But I think some of our satellites are pretty old and oh yeah, would be, be good enough to hang right. on. To. Um, so that would be interesting. Plus, the ISS astronauts, there'd be a real yeah, risk up there. So they, they might get told to come home if no. it was a really bad storm. So. They've I mean, got the, heavily shielded sections. Uh, oh, so they? I know that's their current protocol for when it's already. I mean, luckily, we're at quiet sun time yes. at the moment anyway. <gasps> yeah, there was um, no solar spots at all for like all of February, I think. So yeah, it's one, we, it's one, one of the quieter minimums that have ever been seen. Yeah, there was a beautiful image, just the sun with. No features. Well, I should say welcome to the next solar cycle, by the way. Because yeah. I, I think when you hit the minimum for sunspots, that's you transitioning into the next yeah. 11 years worth of solar sunspottiness. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it's cycle 58 now, but I need to double check. But welcome. Welcome all. <laughs> okay. I think that probably leads quite nicely to the, to the end of the podcast then. So we'll leave it there and we'll go and have a read of this paper and try and do a bit more. Uh, archaeology using astronomy. Can I suggest yeah. you do it while you're listening to Billy Holiday? It, by the way, it, <laughs> it is currently the top most popular Billy Holiday song on Spotify. So I'm glad to see that it got bumped to the top of the list because of that story. So I'm still sad. Well, thank you very much for listening. Cheers, all. Bye.